Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Um, I got home last week and I said, why on earth did I try to cover six chapters of Revelation in one sermon? Um, Because I think I I overwhelmed myself, so I don't know how y'all felt um, with that. But um, last week we covered the chapters surrounding these two chapters, or these three chapters. We covered 8 through 11. We skipped 12 through 14. We're coming back to it this week. We did 15 and 16 as well. Um, Now we're going to look at 12 through 14. Um, Probably my favorite series of movies is the original Star Wars trilogy, the ones made in the 70s and 80s. They've made like, you know, 20,000 Star Wars movies at this point. But back when there was just three, um, it was just a story of a war, good versus evil. Um, There was an evil empire, rebels seeking to restore good to the galaxy. There was an evil villain, Darth Vader, and Luke Skywalker, the good guy. And Luke Skywalker starts out really adamant to defeat Darth Vader. And then he learns that he's actually actually his son. And so from that point on, he seeks to try to redeem Darth Vader, bring him to the good side. And in the end, the war is over. Good wins. Evil loses. Good celebrates the defeat and restoration of order and goodness. Revelation 12 through 14 is something like a war. It's Something like an epic war like that between good and evil. Um, we, we, we see a war. It's the war of history. It's um, the war between, um, we've seen these characters all throughout the book, it's the war between the lamb and the dragon. We've said that the lamb represents Jesus, obviously the dragon, as we're going to see, represents the devil. The war between Jesus and the devil. There's characters all throughout this. Um, You have um, people that we're going to see, there's a woman, there's the dragon, there's the beast, there's another beast, there's the the 144,000 pop-up, which we saw. Um, they're all playing a part in this war as, they, as it's fought. Um, we've seen a lot of sets of seven as we've worked our way through the book. We saw seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Um, this section of Revelation also has seven. It's seven visions. There's going to be seven visions as we work our way through this. John has organized Revelation around sets of seven, and that's what he does here. Um, As we work our way through this passage, obviously some things in it are in the past. Some things in it are in the future. And some details are are very clearly going to be referencing people in history. Um, My my view of this passage is that it it shows the course of human history as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan war against each other. And so the various characters we're going to see can actually be um, multiple people throughout history. It's not necessarily just one person. It can manifest, different characters here can manifest as different people in history. And so let's read, um, we'll we'll read one vision at a time, so so I'm not reading it all at once. Vision number one, um, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Vision number one, we see a woman. She's clothed in the sun, moon's under her feet. She has twelve stars in her crown. Who is this woman? Well, some would probably just jump in. We're going to see who she gives birth to in the next few verses. It's it's obviously Jesus that she gives birth to. So some people would immediately say this is Mary, especially if their denomination really emphasizes Mary. Um, I don't think it's Mary. Um, We see that detail about her. She has a crown with 12 stars. What does that evoke? 
well, the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. And so this woman has to represent either the, the, the nation of Israel or the church. I'd say Israel. Because, as we will see in the second vision, she gives birth to Jesus. Israel gives birth to Jesus. The church does not do that. Jesus creates the church. And so, um, so some people that I really respect would say this is the church. I think it's Israel because Jesus comes from Israel. Um, but as we're going to see as the story goes on, Israel and the church, so the nation of Israel and then all the nations who follow Jesus, the church, are going to be clumped together as one eventually. They're going to become one people. Um, but this woman here represents Israel. Um, you see this um, actually, let's go ahead and read the second vision, and then I'll make that comment. Um, three through six. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Um, this vision and this section are pulling from a major theme in the Old Testament. Hold your spot in Revelation, um, Genesis 3. Probably the exact other side of your Bible, Genesis 3. Um, you remember that when Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil, by the serpent, um, and they gave in, God put a curse on each of them. He put a curse on the man, the woman, and the serpent. Listen to what he says in verse 15 to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We call this the proto-gospel, the first time the gospel is mentioned in the Old Testament. And we see this theme, if we read the Old Testament, we see this theme going throughout the entire thing. There's this line of the seed of the woman who goes all the way down to Jesus. We, we, we see this theme followed, that there's going to be this descendant of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. He, he's going to defeat the serpent for good. And so we, we can trace that all the way down to Jesus, to him being born in the flesh. Um, Revelation 12 through 14, we're seeing how that Genesis 3.15 gets fulfilled. We're, we're seeing that. Um, so we see this dragon. <clears throat> Um, he's the devil. We, we can tell that. He, he, ver, verse um, 4, his tail swept, swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them down to earth, obviously carrying the idea of the, of the angels being led astray in heaven. Um, he bringing them down to earth. Um, but notice that he has seven heads and ten horns. Um, what, what is that meant to convey? Well, we could maybe point to the United Nations or some crazy thing like that, but, but, but very clearly, it's pulling from the Old Testament with that. It's pulling from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, which we've looked at, like I think, multiple times um, as we've been working through Revelation, maybe the most important chapter in the Old Testament with the book of Revelation. Daniel 7, there's these four beasts that come out. And there's that one like the Son of Man who God gives all authority in the world to. That Son of Man kills all four of the beasts. Um, listen to how one of the beasts is described. Um, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came out, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its root, and behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking great things. There's a ten-horned beast in Daniel 7. Um, we're going to get into it in a minute. The, the, the four beasts in Daniel 7 um, can very easily be pointed to, to be the, the, the four nations that rise up after Israel goes into exile before Jesus comes. You've got the Greeks there. You've got the, um, the Romans. I forget who the other two are, but, um, but very clearly 
um, writing to these people who know what these empires are, they're, they're meant to think of Daniel 7. This dragon tries to kill the child that is born. This child is, this, this woman's giving birth, and instead of, you know, uh, an OBGYN being there, there, there's this dragon standing there just ready to eat this child when it comes out. The child's born, and immediately, like, he's, he's caught up to heaven, and he, and he stays there with God. He's protected from this, this dragon. Um, dragon's trying to kill the child, and we know the story of Jesus. We know that time and time again, God, the, the devil tried to, to stop what Jesus was doing, tried to kill him. We see it in the birth of Christ, when Herod um, finds out that there's a king of the Jews, and he tells, um, he tells his soldiers to go kill every child to and under in Bethlehem, um, so he can wipe out this king. Of course, he didn't know that Joseph took the kid away during the night. Um, we, we see it with um, you know, his temptation how he, he, he tempted the, um, Jesus in the wilderness, tried to get him to abandon his post. We see it with the death of Christ. Um, the devil thought he thought Jesus lost when Christ died because the Son of God is dead. And three days later, it was that very death that the devil was defeated by. The, the grave opens and Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends up to God as, as Revelation 12 says. He's caught up to God. Notice it says about this child in verse 5, he's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm chapter 2, which is about, which is about Jesus. It's, it's about Jesus. Um, he has that rod of iron that he rules the nations with. We see the story of Jesus described in this child. And the devil doesn't get to kill the child. He doesn't get to stop the child. So he goes to fight against the woman who gave birth to the child to have a little revenge. Um, so the woman flees into the wilderness, it says. She goes there. And so Israel goes off into the wilderness to be nourished. Well, what does that mean? We find out in the next in the next vision. So, chapter set, or chapter twelve, verse seven. Vision number three. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their life, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil who has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that this, his time is short." When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water um, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to, to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He, and he stood on the sand of the sea." Um, wow, that's a really crazy vision. Um, so what do we make of it? Well, um, just understand, first of all, Satan was defeated at the cross. He was defeated when Jesus died and rose again. He was defeated there. Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled when Jesus died. The serpent um, bruised the head of Jesus, bruised the heel of Jesus, but Jesus crushed the devil's head. Satan did fall from heaven in the beginning, but he's officially defeated when Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus, Satan has already lost the war. He, he has no um, possibility of victory 
We don't have this fear that um, Satan may still get the upper hand. He may still um, defeat us. His defeat has been secured on Easter morning. It's been done. Now, he still wrecks havoc on the world, and we're going to see that in just a minute, but he cannot win. He has lost, and that is secure. In verses 10 and 11, we share in the conquering that Jesus had over the devil. Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We share in the conquering of the devil that Jesus carried out. He, he, he continually accuses us. We know that from Job 1. Um, you know, Job, the story of Job, the, the devil comes before God. All the um, sons of God are there before him, and, and he comes before him, and he says, um, Hey, I bet you Job will, will leave you. Look, look at Job. He's got all this good stuff, but I bet if you just threw a little hardship his way, he'd, he'd leave. He comes to accuse Job before God. And it's a picture of what he does uh, for each of us. He does it toward us. Um, he's constantly accusing us before God. Look at how frustrated Aaron got again. Look at that. Look how much he got frustrated over that tiny little thing. Look at Aaron struggling with anxiety again. Well, look at him not trusting you, God. Take a look. The problem is the devil has no claim on us anymore. He can accuse us day and night, but he cannot say that we should die for our sin because Christ has already died for it. He's already died for every sin that you're going to commit tomorrow. He has already died, and Satan has no claim on you anymore. So because he can't win, because he can't take those who know Jesus and throw them into hell, because that's already done away with for them, he goes out to make war against us in whatever way he can. Whatever way he can do, because his time is short, verse 12. So he goes after this woman, he tries to kill her. And it gets a little unclear from here because, verse 6, the woman was off in the wilderness to be nourished for 1,260 days, but then for a time and times and half a time, the, the devil's trying to kill her. So it's a little unclear what's going on, but, but when you kind of lay it out of what's, of what's happening, it seems, like, it seems like Israel and the church morph into one woman here, and, and we, into the woman. We know that from the rest of the New Testament, that God made us into one new man, that Israel and the church are now one group of people. It's all the blood-bought people that follow Jesus. Um, those Jews who rejected Jesus are not part of true Israel, according to Galatians and Romans and several other places. It's it's now the people of faith, Jew and Gentile. So we have two sides of the coin here. She's being nourished for 1,260 days. Yet during that time, times and half a time, time there probably meaning year. Um, so year, years and half a year, three and a half years, um, the serpent's trying to kill her. He's going after her. Not quite sure how it all fits together, but overall what happens as history plays itself out? Well, um, we have to take that with what we looked at with the two witnesses, chapter 11. Um, you remember I said the two witnesses, um, I, I think, represent the church. Two witnesses were needed to establish a case um, in the Old Testament. Um, and, and they carry out the ministry of Moses and Elijah, and they prophesy for three and a half years. And then the devil, the, the beast kills them. They're dead for three and a half days, and then they're raised, and Jesus comes and defeats the beast. Um, so reading it with that in mind, what, what, what is this? Well, first we have to ask, what are the 42 months? We, we, we've seen um, 42 months in chapter 11, verse 1. Um, actually, that's not correct. It's close to there. It's chapter, 40, it's chapter 11, verse 40, verse, verse 3. No, verse 2. Um, the, the outer core of the temple will be given over to the nations. They will trample it for 42 months. Um, then the two witnesses, verse 3, will prophesy for 1,260 days. Not exactly 42 months if you do the math, but, but, but carrying the same idea. Um, you have 12.6, the woman is being nourished for 1,260 days. Um, verse 14 of 12, um, she's um, 
the, the time, time, and half a time, and then you'll see in verse chapter 13, verse 5, the beast is given authority for 42 months. It's all one time period. It's not meant to be five different sets of 42 months. It's all one thing. The same, the beast, all the beasts are the same, all the lambs are the same. Like, it's meant to be the same time period, 42 months, three and a half years. So what is it? Some would say it's a literal three and a half years during the tribulation at the end of history. Um, I don't think that works, though, because it seems to proceed right after the resurrection of Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 12, um, the child's caught up to the throne. The woman flees into the wilderness. She's going to be nourished for 1,260 days. There's not like a giant time gap of thousands of years that happen in between that. It seems to happen right after the resurrection. So it seems to be more of a symbolic number for the time between Christ's resurrection and His second coming, which I've said is the point of revelation every single vision that it shows. It's showing what life is like for the church in between the first coming and the second coming. Three and a half years. That has special meaning for Christians um, during this time for multiple reasons. Um, James chapter 5 Give you a little flashback to earlier in the year when I started preaching Elijah's story. Um, and then we went into quarantine and I did the rest of it on Facebook. So half the church didn't even see the end of that series. James chapter 5 verse 17. Listen to what it says about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So you've got that backdrop of the Old Testament. Um, Elijah kept it from raining for three and a half years. But then you look at history of what's going on at this time. Um, between 66 and 70 A.D., which would have been about 20 years ago for these people, um, there's something that happened called the Siege of Jerusalem, the War of the Jews and the Romans. Um, they would have been very familiar with it, as familiar for us as World War II. It was a big deal. Um, and during that time, for 42 months, the Roman Empire attacked Jerusalem. And it resulted in the, in the temple being destroyed and the Jews being scattered would have been a very familiar event, very important event for them. Also, so you've got the Elijah, you've got the War of Jerusalem, and then you have the fact that there was a terrible Roman emperor named Nero. He led a major persecution against Christians in this time. How long do you think it lasted? 42 months. That, that's how long it lasted. It, they, they know what 42 months is. They're very familiar with it. John is taking two, three very real events and making them symbolically represent the last period of history. From when Jesus rises to when Jesus returns. It, that, that's the last days. When you see last days in the Bible, it's not talking about like the final days of history. It's talking about this final period of history that we're in from when Jesus went to heaven to when he comes back. That's the last days. During this time, the church is bearing witness to Christ. We're doing our job making disciples. We're going to the nations. Um, during this time, the dragon is making war on the church. He's seeking to wipe the church off the planet. Um, the beast and the false prophet, as we're going to see in 13, are exercising authority. And the world is a wreck as the nations trample down everything outside the church. I don't need to tell you that the world is a wreck during this time. So you have the 42 months. And then look back at 11. Um, chapter 11, um, verse, verse 11, after three and a half days, remember the beast kills the two witnesses, they um, are dead for three and a half days. So you got that period next. You had the 42 months, now there's three and a half days. During this time, the beast lashes out against the church and slays them. It's this idea in Scripture that we know that there's a, there's a worldwide persecution that comes against the church at the end. That, that there's this major persecution. This has often been called the tribulation period. Um, the popular view is that the tribulation is seven years. Um, there's actually only one passage in the Bible that, that people can use to say that, and I don't think it's about the tribulation. I think it's about something else. It's Daniel chapter 9. Um, so I don't know how long the tribulation will be, but for a short time at the end of history, the beast will make war against the church and majorly conquer them. And then we come to, we'll see more about the beast in just a second. We come thirdly to Judgment Day. You had the 42 months, 
You had three and a half days, and now you have the final day, judgment day. It is when Jesus comes, He um, rescues His people, He kills the beast and the false prophet. After the worldwide persecution, He wipes out the beast. Um, he does that. He defeats the beast and he defeats the dragon, which is going to continue to be laid out in the rest of Revelation. Um, and so, who's the beast? Well, that comes in chapter 13. Let me read 1 through 10 of 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the earth in the Lamb's book of life, who was slain. If anyone has ears, let him hear. If anyone is, taken to, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes." If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Just keeps getting weirder. Um, so we have a beast here. We're going to see a second beast in just a second, but there's a first beast. What are some details we notice about him? Well, first of all, he's very similar to the dragon. You see that in the very beginning? He's got ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems. Only difference with the dragon, the dragon had seven diadems. This one has ten. Um, so he has three more diadems than the first one. But secondly, notice um, the description of him. Verse 2. He's like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, and like a dragon. He's got the, those four animals there. Daniel chapter 7, which we referenced earlier, the Son of Man comes and kills the four beasts. Those four beasts are a lion a bear, a leopard, and a dragon. John has taken those four beasts that are four... Um, uh, I, again, I can't remember the, 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 all four of the nations, but it's the Greeks, um, the, the Romans, and two other nations. Very clearly, if you, if you study history and, and look at it from, from um, the destruction of Jerusalem to when Jesus came, it's four nations. Um, John has taken all four of those nations, with the, which these people that Revelation has written to would have known what they were. He's brought them together into one beast. He's made the beast this superpower, this incredible beast that is going to fight against the Son of Man. You notice one of the... One of the heads, there's seven heads on this beast. One of them has a mortal wound, but that mortal wound has been healed. We'll, we'll mention what that means in a minute. And finally, the whole earth worships it. Verse 4, the whole earth worships it, except one group of people, the Christians. The Christians don't worship it. Um... So it gets mushy with which, which of these details about this creature are future and which is past and which is present. It's a little mushy there, but just understand, John is describing a beast that exists in all times in human history and will culminate at the end of history. However, he's using imagery to describe that beast that these first century Christians would have understood. We're going to get into what those are in just a second. So generally... This beast exists in all times. It would have existed for them then, would have existed for the past 2,000 years, manifest himself in different ways at different times um, to different groups of people. Um, he will culminate in the end in a final beast that will wage war against the Son of God. He's got ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems. 
If I, were to, if, I, if I were writing a book like Revelation to you and I were to describe a beast, a, not a beast, but a being in it, and that beast had 13 stripes on its back and 50 stars in its hair, what, what would I be describing to you? Well, well no, the, the flag, the American flag, 13 stripes, 50 stars. Like you would, you would know what that was. Every American would know what that was if they heard that. Like you, you know what that is. These Christians know exactly what a 10-horned, ten, a seven-headed beast is. They, they know. It's the Roman Empire. Rome was the city of seven hills. They had ten provinces. You tell a first century Christian that it's a um, ten diadem, a ten horn, seven headed beast. They know exactly who you're talking about. It's the Roman Empire. Seven hills, ten provinces. On top of that, they had ten diadems. Um, there's this significant period of Roman history, which is where they would have been living, where there were these very important kings, um, and, and it's kind of speaking to that, the, the progression of the kings. One of these heads has a mortal wound. We'll get into who that is in a minute, but um, there were... Um, Actually, that's not in a minute. That's right now. There were seven important Roman emperors that span a particular time. One of them was Nero. Every Christian in this time knew who Nero was. Nero had come against the same as any Jewish person today knows who Adolf Hitler is. They, they know who Nero is. Nero was a terrible, terrible king that reigned in Rome. Um, Nero, however, killed himself. Nero um, killed himself, and it says there one of the one of the heads had a mortal wound, it, but but that mortal wound was healed. So what does that mean? Did Nero come back from the dead? No. Nero killed himself, and Christians might have thought at that time, "Yay, no more persecution. The guy who hated us is gone." But then another emperor arose named Domitian. I already told you a little bit about him. He's the emperor at the time that Revelation is written. And he restarted Nero's persecution against the Christians. That head is back for them. He's come back. Persecution has begun again. Now to really understand some of the other details of the beast, we've got to read about the second beast in the rest of chapter 13. So chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that, is, that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So details about this beast. First of all, he looks, verse 11, he looks like an innocent little lamb. He, he looks like an innocent little lamb. He does not look threatening at all. He's a lamb. Um... People aren't going to see this beast as scary. He's a nice little lamb. But this beast makes everyone worship the first beast. He um, makes everyone worship the beast. He makes everyone take the mark of the beast. We'll get into what that is in a minute. Um, he makes everyone worship the beast. Essentially, you have here the first beast is a political authority in the world. The second beast is a religious authority who gets people to worship the political authority. Often, um, in most major nations, the religious people have called people to worship the political people. Like you've, you saw it in the Roman Empire, you saw it in Nazi Germany, you sometimes see it in the United States. Um, we, we, we have the religious people that, that, that make it their goal that people would praise and worship the political leader. And that's what's going on here. 
But then we get to the mark of the beast. And this is the passage in the Bible that honestly probably inspires more conspiracy theories than maybe any other passage in Scripture. Um, Every generation has had their idea of what the mark of the beast is. Um, You had it with the credit card. The credit card, the mark of the beast, because it's this little piece of plastic. If we can get rid of all cash, you'll have this piece of plastic. You can't buy or sell anything unless you have this piece of plastic. For some people, it's the social security number that you got. Everyone's got their own identification number. It's the mark of the beast. For today, it would be um, a lot of people think it's the microchip. It's this little computer chip they want to get and put inside your hand. It's got all your information on it. So if you end up dead on the highway, they can just scan and figure out who you are um, so that you can actually, you know, go to Walmart and beep, beep. All right. Pay, beep. Um, So people see that. That's the mark of the beast. Um, There's a conspiracy theory out there that the COVID-19 vaccine will include a a microchip, and that's the mark of the beast. If you don't take the vaccine, you're going to have to be killed because you're not going to (laughs) live. Listen, I don't want a microchip in my hand. That's not what Revelation 13 is about. It's just not. It's very clear in this passage, the mark of the beast is about worshiping the beast. You take it because you worship the beast. Nobody's going to trick you to take it in a vaccine. Boop, gotcha, you're going to hell. That, that's not how it's going to work. There's nothing here. Remember our rule. We, we did several rules about Revelation at the beginning of this. First of all, you have to, um, you, you, you can't read anything into this book that's not in this book. If you read, if you uh, think something's in that passage, but it's not in there, you're in danger of breaking the um, warning at the end of the book that says don't add to this book or take anything away from it. Um, there's nothing in Revelation 13 about everybody on the earth having to line up in an assembly line, walk down the assembly line and choose. Are they going to take the mark or are they going to get their head chopped off by a guillotine? Like that's from the Left Behind series. That's not in the, that's not in the text. That's not there. Notice the number, 666. Why do I say it that way and not 666? Because we often do that. We often think it's 666. Three sixes beside each other. It's 666. Um... We often have these beside each other, so that anytime we see the numbers 666 beside each other, we freak out. I was a cashier at a, at a store one time. Um, it was kind of like a tractor supply sort of store. Um, I was a cashier there during college, and this lady came through, and she, you know, I, I beeped out all of her items and put them in the bags. Her total came up to $6.66. And I said, your total is $6.66. And she's like, oh my goodness. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. Here, give me this. Scan this candy bar. I can't pay that. No, no way. And I don't know if she's more freaked out by the total or I'm more freaked out by her. But that's what happens with her. Like, she loses her mind. It's not three sixes. It's 666, like the number below 667, the number above 665. Um, If you have a King James Version, I think that's how it reads, at least maybe in an older version of the King James Version. Um, 666. Notice what John says in verse 18. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number. Like he's saying, you know who this guy is. You know who I'm talking about. He's saying this to the Christians in the first century. You know who I'm talking about. Just calculate his number. You'll, you'll know. What is, what's that talking about? Well, they had a... Um, I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, we'll come back to, 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 to what that means. Um, how many people take the mark? Take a look at verse 16. Remember we've said numbers are important in Revelation? Count up how many groups of people take the mark. Small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. How many is that? It's six, not seven. Remember we've seen times when judgment's been poured out in the world and it was poured out on seven groups of people, thus all people. There's one group of people that don't take the mark. It falls short just a hair. 
There's one group that don't. It's Christians. They don't take the mark because Christians already have a different mark. You'll see in verse chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him the 144,000. Remember, that represents all Christians. They had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. They've already got a name on their foreheads. They don't need another one. The beast and the false prophet, they seek to parody Christ, and they don't measure up. They seek to do what Jesus does, but they fail. They make them take the mark on their forehead and hand. Why is that significant? Well, for, Jews who, for, for Christians who knew their Old Testament, they're, they're going to think of maybe the most important command in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You tell a Christian in the first century there's something that's going to be on their forehead or their hand, they're thinking of that passage. Um, understand the Jews didn't literally wear like Scripture in a box on their head. The Pharisees did that. They looked like morons. But, but the Jewish people didn't do that. It's this idea of worship. You, you, um, your, your mind and the things that you do with your hand are influenced by Scripture, influenced by the Lord. It's about worship. It comes down to this. The person who owns you marks you. Either the lamb or the beast. One of the two of them mark you, either with your um, either with the number of his name or the lamb's name and his father's name. Those verses are right there beside each other. We divide them by chapters, but they wouldn't have been divided by chapters for the Jewish people that read this. Um, is the mark physical or spiritual? Because there's, there's well-meaning Christians that think both. Some people say one or the other. Some say it will be a literal tattoo that you have to take in the end times. Others say it's um, a um, it, it's those who follow the lamb have the lamb's name on their forehead. Those who follow the beast have the beast name on their forehead. I actually hold the spiritual view. That's probably the most contra controversial thing in Revelation, I think. Um, I think it's spiritual. I don't think it's a literal mark on your forehead. However, I say that with the caveat that if there ever comes a time when a world leader tells you to take his mark on your forehead, don't do it, because I could be wrong, because I'm a moron. So who's this beast? Who is this guy? The numbers tell us 666. People have made any number of guesses based on that, who it is. You know, you take the number of letters in Bill Gates' name, which is nine, and you divide it by three, which is the Holy Trinity, and you times that by two, which is the number of terms Obama had, and what do you get? Six. And what is six times three? Six, six, six. I mean, we figured it out, people. But remember, this is written to first century Christians who never knew Bill Gates or Obama or anybody like that. They didn't know who those people were. But they did know who Nero was. They knew Nero very well. Nero had killed many of their parents, many of their grandparents, many of their pastors. He, he had done that. And in Hebrew, there's this thing called gamatia. Um, it, it's basically every Hebrew letter has a numerical value to it. You take those letters, you add them up. So you take Nero Caesar, written in Hebrew, you add up the numbers of the, the numerical value of each letter. What do you think you get? 666. Revelation was written in Greek, but, but these Christians knew Hebrew. Um, Christians and Jews were the only ones who spoke Hebrew. The rest of the world didn't. Um, you add up Nero Caesar in Hebrew, and it's 666. Actually, when Revelation was translated into Latin, um, they changed it to 616. They didn't make a mistake there. They did that because Latin has that number system as well. And Nero Caesar in Latin is 616. John's giving the Christians that are reading this a code. You know who he's talking about? It's Nero. Nero was a beast. He was a beast of a man. Aside from the fact that he was ugly, he, um, just, he killed his own mother. He castrated and married a 10-year-old boy. 
he had a wife that got pregnant and he kicked her several times in the stomach to make her miscarry. He would, um, he would arrest Christians and he would strip them naked. He would have them tied to a post. And he would put animal skins on himself and he would attack and mutilate Christians like he was an animal. This guy was the most epitome of a beast you've ever seen. But even beyond his number and beyond that, we've already seen the imagery of Nero that one of the heads of the beast was, has a mortal wound and also that he wanted the whole world to worship him. Nero wanted everybody to worship him. He was crazy. Notice verse 10. If anyone is slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Do you know how Nero killed himself? With a sword. He killed himself with a sword. For the Christians in the first century, the beast manifests itself as Nero, but that's not where it stops. I'm going to fly through the rest of this because I just realized the time. Um, many would call this, this beast a figure known as the Antichrist. You've heard that name, I'm sure. Um, but most Christians hold that it's not just Nero, but that there's an Antichrist in most generations of history. Um, there's no question in my mind Hitler and Stalin were Antichrist. Um, they're not the final Antichrist, but they were Antichrist. Uh, we usually call this being the Antichrist, even though in Revelation the word Antichrist never appears. Um, look at 1 John 2. 1 John 2 is the place where the word Antichrist is mentioned in the New Testament. Um, 18 and 19. Children, as the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we want you to know that it's the last. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would not have. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Um, jump down to. Um, 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. It's the Antichrist is somebody who denies the Father and the Son. That means any Christian heretic in history was an Antichrist. And any ruler that does what the beast does is an Antichrist. Many Antichrists have come, John said, and one is coming. There's many people that are like the Antichrist, and there's one who will manifest himself at the end. Um, look at 2 Thessalonians 2 later um, for, for knowing who this, who even more this guy is. He's possibly the Antichrist, possibly somebody else. But, but that passage says that the Antichrist, the, the man of lawlessness, it calls it, will, will Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. We're going to see that next week when we get to chapter 19. Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. And that passage says that the second coming of Jesus can't happen until the final Antichrist is revealed. And we, we don't make guesses on who that is. It may be a thousand years before he's here. But the final Antichrist has to be revealed before the second coming happens. So, um, we're short on time. Chapter 14 just just completely shows um, something beautiful. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. You can read the rest later. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are all virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Very quickly, the Lamb and Christians are in Mount Zion. Not our church, but, but the, the historical Mount Zion. Um, it's the city that Jerusalem was probably, it's the hill that Jerusalem was probably built upon. It's the, it's the place where David's royal th throne would be, where, in, where the eternal Jerusalem would be. Um, the point of all of this is simply this. Jesus and his church are reigning higher than the beast. 
that they're reigning eternally higher than the beast. The beast has no authority over them. No ruler on earth truly has authority. Jesus is higher than all of them. They have no power over him. The rest of the chapter, basically God gives the world one more chance to repent because he's a gracious God and he will even give those who worship the beast one more chance to repent. He calls out and they reject it and then the final judgment comes and it, verse 19 of chapter 14, the, the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's brittle. It's a bloodbath when the final day comes. And we're going to see that next week. That's going to be 17 through 20, um, just, just laid out there. Just a few final thoughts as we go based on this section. First of all, there are no neutral people in the world. There are people who follow the lamb, and there are people who follow the beast. Everyone you know is in one of those two groups. Secondly, Satan works in our world, but, but he has no final victory. You know, I'm, I tend to be really fearful of dogs. When, when I was a kid, my friend's dog, like, chased me around the swimming pool and scratched me on the side, and, and it hurt real bad. I've been scared of dogs since then. Um, so I'll go walking out in the neighborhood, and I see a dog, and it starts running at me. And it gets about halfway, and then it gets stopped by the chain that it's hung on. That's sort of how Satan is. He's a ferocious dog on a leash. He has no real power to maul you and destroy you. He has power to um, intimidate and terrify you. But he's defeated. He's already lost. The cross defeated him. You have such, finally, you have such victory and security in your salvation. Remember verse 11 of chapter 12. You have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. So that now Romans 8 can be said of you, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So go with that tonight and know that the war's already been won. We're still fighting it, but our victory is secure. Let's pray. Father, I praise you that the Lamb has overcome Lord, because there's no way I could have overcome. I can't defeat a beast. I can't mount up with all my AK-47s and kill the beast. The lamb had to do that for me. Father, I pray that we would put our confidence in that. And I pray that we would know that no matter how much it looks like the beast is winning in the world, the lamb has already beat him. The lamb's already won. May that be our hope and our confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.